Okay, while everybody's finding their seats, let me remind you of a couple of announcements. One that is hasn't been uh, posted yet and needs to be posted up on the DBM website is that uh, there is a deadline that is um, uh, for that those who want to go on the Egypt trip. There's a deadline for deposits. Now, I'm sure that if you can't deal with that and you ha- aren't ready just yet, that that won't be a problem. But um, we need to really have an understanding of how many people are are planning to and are going to go on that Egypt trip that will be next December. And information about that is on the website. There will be some new information that will be posted in the next couple of days. But the deadline on that deposit is going to be the 1st of May. So just uh, if you are thinking about that, now's the time to start preparing. Also, we have a picnic this Saturday. I don't know if you've been checking the weather. We start checking the weather about two weeks beforehand, and it went from a 40% chance of rain to an 80% chance of rain. <laughs> so that's, that's pretty much normal, but it's the only day within, within a group of four or five days where there's any precipitation, so I don't know what that means. I haven't seen a long-term forecast uh, yet. I got back uh, yesterday from Albuquerque and haven't been paying a lot of attention to other things. So uh, anyway, it, there's, I'm still planning to go out there even though there may not be, um, it, there, we may cancel it, but we usually make that decision by, by Thursday night unless it just seems so obvious that ahead of time. But you never know what these forecasts will do. It just can change on a dime. Okay, so that's the picnic. Um, if we don't have the picnic Saturday morning, we will have our regular deacons meeting and men's prayer breakfast here. Okay? So that will be the plan. Uh, what else was there? I think, what? Oh, Camperete. Uh, the dates for Camperete are July 14th through July 20th this year, and so be in prayer for that. Registration is open on the website, www. .campareite.com, and there will be a caravan going from Houston to Tennessee for the camp. The other thing I wanted to make a comment on is that I was gone over the weekend to uh, uh, conduct the memorial service for George Meisinger in uh, Albuquerque, and appreciate all of your prayers for that. It, it went well. Uh, Charlie Clough and I were the two main speakers. We had some other people who had been in George's church churches over uh, his his lifetime and his ministry, which uh, which gave people a real insight into who George was. And it was uh, very, as you can imagine, it was a service that focused on the Lord, focused on God's provision for us and his grace. And God was truly glorified in the service as he was in George's, uh, George's life and, and ministry. So we can be very, very thankful for that. And please continue to keep the Meisinger family in your prayers. Uh, Their oldest son, George and Sandy's oldest son, Jim, as many of you know, passed away, went to be with the Lord a year and a half ago from a brain tumor, from brain cancer. And so there's been uh, a lot of death and loss in that family. And so they're uh, they're just so focused on the Lord. They are truly a a joy-filled family. So that's also a great testimony of um, of George as a as a father and a leader in the home. Not yet. We'll get it. It takes 
it takes other churches a week or ten days to do what we do in a couple of hours. So, you know, we have to wait for them to do whatever it is they do and then get it to us. So it will be posted on the website once we once we get it. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, that, that's true. So, all right. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. The purpose is for us to make sure that we are walking by the Spirit. When we sin, it is described in Scripture as becoming defiled. We become spiritually dirty, as it were, and so there has to be a cleansing that takes place in order to uh, continue our walk with the Lord, to enjoy our fellowship with Him, and to have the Holy Spirit produce fruit in our life and as well as all the other areas of our spiritual growth. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's such a great privilege to come together to fellowship with one another because our fellowship is with you and as a result of that we have this fellowship one with another and father we are so blessed to have your your word and to be able to learn about your word in freedom to have such a heritage in our personal lives and in our nation uh, for your word and father we need to be thankful for those blessings every single day and not take these things for granted for a time may may soon come when we do not have access to Bible teaching, when all that we have is that which we have memorized and that which we have stored in our soul. And, Father, we pray that that time may not come, but we continue to read and hear about uh, universities such as Yale and other uh, schools of higher learning that truly do persecute the Christians that are there, that uh, where there are tremendous movements and student groups who oppose the presence of Christians all because they believe that certain behaviors are are sinful and are not part of your plan for our lives. And, Father, we pray that you would strengthen the organizations that seek to defend uh, these Christians in the courts and that the First Amendment would continue to be upheld and our rights protected. But on a personal level, there's opposition on businesses. There's opposition to uh, believers who who hold views that are not considered politically uh, acceptable or correct today, all because of perverted social pressure. Father, we pray for believers that they might understand accurately 
and in a gracious way how they are to hold these views and to understand your word and that they might endure and persevere in the midst of the pressure. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. And we're continuing our study on the Davidic covenant. And we looked at, in the past weeks, we have looked at the text of the Davidic covenant itself, which is given in Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, and the parallel passage, which is in First Chronicles 17, 11 uh, to 14. And this is an important, important covenant that God has made as an extension of the uh, seed promise in the, uh, in the Abrahamic covenant. And so we not only have looked at uh, the Davidic covenant itself, what was revealed to David out of God's grace and goodness, that it's an everlasting covenant, it is an unconditional covenant, like the Abrahamic covenant that is its predecessor. It is also what was termed in the ancient Near East a royal grant. This is a, a freely given promise, a freely given covenant. Its purpose is to encourage and strengthen a loyal servant to even uh, greater obedience. There's nothing conditional about it, and God will fulfill it exactly as it has been, uh, has been given. So tonight we're going to look at Isaiah 9, 6, having looked at Isaiah 7, 14 last time, and we're continuing to focus on what the Bible teaches about the Davidic covenant. As I have pointed out, the Abrahamic covenant was given freely to Abraham. It's summarized in sort of a preview in Genesis 12, uh, 1 through 13. And as we examine that passage, there's three elements to this covenant that is cut, actually. That's the biblical term that is actually inaugurated and initiated with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And these parts relate to a land. You cannot have a nation without a land. So God, God is promising them a nation. So first he promises land, then seed, that's descendants. Now, one of the things that I want you to pay attention to, I'm going to start building this a little more into what I'm teaching, but this word that is translated seed is a word that has a collective sense, but it can also refer to an individual. So it can it, uh, the English word offspring is a word that is similar. You can talk about someone's offspring, and that may be many children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, or it might just mean one child. So that's the way the word seed works. And when we look at these passages, what we'll have to do is examine the pronouns that follow or that are part of the context. Sometimes uh, even these are mistranslated. There are examples, and we will get to those probably not for a couple of weeks, where seed is used in the singular and in the Hebrew, it then uses a third-person singular pronoun, he, that tells you that seed in that context should refer to an individual. And you find that in a passage such as Genesis 22:18, and its application in Galatians 3.16. 
But then what happens is past, uh, translations like the New King James Version and the New American Standard Version and a number of others will translate that uh, seed and then they'll translate the third person singular. Third person is he, she, or it, and that's singular. Third person plural is they. Okay, so it will translate a third person singular pronoun with a third person plural pronoun in English which misses and distorts the whole passage. So that's the confusion that comes uh, because of uh, this collective noun, and many times it is used in that larger sense of, of descendants, plural, rather than singular offspring. And the third category has to do with the blessing. So the three covenants that expand the Abrahamic covenant are the land covenant, the Davidic covenant and the new covenant, and we're focusing on that Davidic covenant. And like the Abrahamic covenant, it has three dimensions to it. The first is there is a promise of an eternal house. Second, there is the promise of an eternal kingdom. And third, there is the promise of an eternal throne. And for someone to have an eternal reign, they themselves must be eternal. So that tells us in a rather... Uh, ambiguous way that the one who would fulfill the Davidic covenant as the ultimate seed of David towards which it looked was one who would be divine. But because he's spoken of as a descendant of David, he would also be human. So even though that's not brought out in a big way in the covenant, that's implicit in the language that is used. But as we go through these subsequent prophecies that we find in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, as well as a few of the uh, minor prophets that we'll look at, we will see things that are brought out in addition to just the basic elements as that are described in Second Samuel uh, seven twelve to sixteen. The two terms I've introduced in the last two lessons are diachronic, which means through time. Dia is a Hebrew, pre- I mean the Greek preposition for through, chronos for time. So that's studying what is taught in the progression of time. First as it's revealed to uh, David in Second Samuel, then as it develops in some of the Psalms, and as it develops in the major, uh, or excuse me, the latter, latter prophets, which includes both the major and the minor prophets. And then intertextual issues, that describes how there are various allusions and references back to the Davidic covenant, just a word here or there that tells you that that verse is talking about a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. We had this chart up on the chronology of the latter prophets and the ninth to 8th century we primarily are looking at examples from Isaiah. We are, have already looked at Hosea and Amos, and now we are looking at prophecies in Isaiah related to the Davidic covenant. And then we'll move on from here to look at prom- promises in Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, and Zechariah, and then end up with uh, a, a look at what I think is a fascinating study of, of the relationship between the passage on the seed of Abraham in uh, Galatians 3.16 and how that connects the Abrahamic covenant to the 
uh, Davidic covenant. In Second Samuel 7.12, in the Davidic covenant, there is this promise to David that when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers. Now, that's an interesting idiom that I've just come to learn in the last year is that what would happen usually in the ancient world is you would take uh, someone who had died and you would put their uh, their body into a tomb and let it uh, decompose over the next year. And then you would go in and you take the bones and you would put them in what was called an ossuary. At earlier times, they used something else. And then they would then put those bones into the grave with all of your ancestors so that you would be literally gathered to your fathers. That's what that idiom uh, means. It has a literal sense that you're basically buried with the rest of your your family and your ancestors. So resting with your fathers has a, is an idiom that relates to that. And God promises, I will set up, I will establish your seed, and there's our word, zarah, and it is a masculine singular here. It's a collective noun, as I pointed out in the in the blue box, and it can refer to seed singular, which or it can refer to plural, which would be descendants, or if it has an uh, if you want to maintain that uh, original ambiguity, you could use the English word offspring, which could be singular or plural. Now, last time we started into an important section, one of the key sections in Isaiah, known as the Emmanuel section, and this goes from Isaiah chapter seven through Isaiah chapter 11. Now, I know there's a number of folks here that have always become confused when they read through Isaiah, and it's easy to do that. I understand that. And so I wanted to put this little chart together. I adapted it from a chart in the Moody Bible Commentary to show the what is going on here in the, um, in, the, in the text. You have three high points in these passages. The sign of Emmanuel's birth, the virgin birth, which we studied last time in Isaiah 7.14. And then the second high point comes in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 7, which is the sign of his, uh, that should be Isaiah, uh, yeah, that Isaiah 1, 9 through 7, and Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, you have um, You have the various titles that reflect the character of the Messiah who is identified also in that passage as Emmanuel, just just as he is in Isaiah 7, 14. And then the next high point comes in Isaiah 11, 1 through 16, where the Messiah is identified as a branch uh, from the root of Jesse, the branch of David. And so we've introduced that already by looking at the prophecy in Isaiah 4.2, which referred to uh, the Messiah as, uh, as the branch. And so that's an important term. But what's in between here, so if you're reading from Isaiah 1 and you're reading through uh, to Isaiah 11 and on into Isaiah 12, I didn't have the room to put that on the slide. That is a blessing that comes at the end of this peer, this section. But if you're reading through that, you, you you can't figure out easily what's going on in between these messianic prophecies. And that's because these prophecies are given in the midst of a horrendous situation in 
in Israel. The kingdom is split into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Uh, the northern kingdom is about to be taken out under divine discipline. They will be destroyed by the Assyrian army in 722 B.C. And then uh, they, the Assyrian army will seriously threaten the southern kingdom, but will not destroy the southern kingdom. God will be gracious, and the southern kingdom will last from uh, from 722 until uh, 586 B.C., a period of about uh, 140 years or so. So in, the, in between these signs that are given related to the Messiah, and that's the blessing that God will provide in the future, there is an announcement of judgment during that time or soon to come that God will bring on both the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel due to their disobedience. So the in between the uh, mountain peaks of the blessings of the sign of the Messiah, you have the valleys of the judgments. In Isaiah 7, 17 to eight twenty two, there is a judgment announced on Judah, Damascus, and Samaria. Damascus is the capital of Syria. In the ancient world, that was called Aram. And so you can think a lot today, think about what's going on north of Israel in Syria, and this isn't the first and won't be the last time that Israel is threatened by uh, military powers that, and, that are hostile to them on their northern border. And then in the second section from 9-8, which comes after the passage we'll be looking at tonight, there's another judgment that is announced on the northern kingdom and Assyria, the kingdom that is going to come in to, and destroy the northern kingdom uh, of Israel. In his excellent work called The Messianic Hope, which is a study of prophecy in the, uh, in, in the Old Testament that there is genuine, true Messianic prophecy, Michael Rydelnik in his work called The Messianic Hope states, rather the hope of Israel was in the future Davidic king. That's what's happening in these passages. It's a continued explanation development of the promise of God to David to give people hope, even though around them their culture was collapsing, not unlike our culture, that there are problems with leadership because you have a king at this point named Ahaz who is uh, also sacrificing his children on the fiery arms of Moloch and Chemosh. He's literally uh, murdering his children as sacrifices to these false gods and to these idols. There's a demonism that is rampant throughout the land. As we see in the latter part of Isaiah chapter 8, people are going to, uh, they're, they're taking their questions to mediums and to uh, what we would call today uh, those who were channeling demons, those who were uh, necromancers, those who are going to the dead, to, trying to contact the, the dead to find out about the future. All of these things are going on in their culture. They were overwhelmed by what we call today the New Age movement. It's just another twist on what was going on back then, another form of idolatry. All of this is happening, and they're seeing just an absolute cultural meltdown 
all around the core of believers that are there who are identified as as the remnant. So the hope for Israel was that God would deliver them through this promise of a future leader who would be a descendant of David. His name is provided here for the first time as Emmanuel, which we studied in Isaiah 7:14 last time. Rydelnik says he would come as a servant king, as uh, seen in Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, 49, 1 through 13, and 54 through 11. There are other passages that refer to him as my servant as well. And that he would provide a sacrificial, a substitutionary death, a sacrificial atonement for Israel and the world, and that's seen in Isaiah 52, 13, through 5312. By the way, a few years ago, I did a standalone study on that particular section of Isaiah 52 through Isaiah 53, so you may want to go back and refresh yourselves on that study. The remnant of Israel to whom the book is addressed was to find their comfort and hope not in Cyrus, who is, who is God says is his anointed one to bring them back from captivity, but in a future messianic king who is a literal, physical, human descendant of King David. But there's more to it than that. So as we uh, look at this passage, just to give you a a little bit of review uh, from what we looked at last time in Isaiah 7, uh, 1 through 16, the key statement is found in verse 14. In verse 14, we are told... Uh, three things that a virgin would conceive, and I pointed out that the word Alma there is not a word that is, uh, it's often, uh, you have critical scholars that say, well, that's not the primary word for virgin, but it is the word for an young woman of marriageable age, uh, and that is assumed that she would have not had any sexual relations prior to that, and the rabbis understood that when they translated the Septuagint into into Greek, the Old Testament into the the Greek into the uh, translation that would be known as the Septuagint, uh, septa meaning seventy, and the the legend is that seventy rabbis in seventy days translated the Torah from Hebrew into Greek. And they took them a little bit longer to get the rest of it. But they understood this, and they translated Alma as Parthenos, meaning a a virgin. And so that's understood. And that was the interpretation until you get into the Middle Ages. And you had a couple of rabbis, one of whose names was Rashi. Uh, That was his uh, acronym. And he changes the hermeneutics. And as a result of his his changes, they were uh, changing the meaning of of the word. And so that was typical. It took the Jewish community about a thousand years to figure out how to reinterpret uh, many of the messianic prophecies so they wouldn't be messianic anymore. That's why part of the reason Rydelnik wrote this book, because a lot of that Jewish thought influenced the early reformers and Protestants, and so we still have residuals of that in much of evangelicalism. So this is a passage that is clearly identifying that the the sign is a virgin. It's not a, any kind of a sign whatsoever that you have a young woman become pregnant and give birth. Remember I said last time that a sign signifies something significant, 
and so this has to stand out. The second thing is that she would give birth to a son, so she, she this is a normal human birth process. And third, the name of this son is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So you have a normal human birth, but it's miraculous in that it's a uh, a miraculous conception and a miraculous birth from a, a virgin and yet the 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 human son that is born is also divine and called uh Emmanuel uh, God with us uh it's important as we get into the the last part of this chapter i hurried through it the last time so we'll spend a little bit more time on it this time is that there is the mention of a of a of this child who is the uh, one who is born of a virgin, and then there is the mention of a uh, another child in verse sixteen. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her and kings. So that indicates, because that was actually fulfilled in just two years, that that would in, indicates to some that the birth of this child was took place at the time of Isaiah, and so they interpret the verse in in a historical sense. That means it's 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 later picked up. Others say, well, it's later picked up and just applied to Jesus, but that there really isn't predictive prophecy here. Of course, I disagree with that, and so does uh, Michael Rydelnik. As we look at the passage, we see that Isaiah is ordered by God in Isaiah 7.3 to take his son, Shear Yashuv, with him. Shear Yashuv means a remnant will return. So the names that are given to these uh, individuals all have meaning and significance. That word, our name is also used in Isaiah 10, verse 21. And he is to illustrate the prophet's uh, message. And what's important about that is when you get down to verse uh, 16 before the child, if you have a New King James Version, they've put child in uppercase because they've interpreted that to refer to the child who was born of the virgin. And this is uh, a lot of detail and it's a lot of grammar, but it's important to understand this this distinction because it affects a number of aspects of our interpretation. And so we have this, uh, the use of these pronouns, as I pointed out last time. For example, in Isaiah 7:10, moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz saying, ask a sign for yourself. This is a second person masculine singular. In Hebrew, you have a feminine singular and you have a masculine singular, so you can tell who somebody's uh, talking to. And so this is a singular. That's the important part. When God is addressing Ahaz in this passage, he is using a singular pronoun. When he addresses the house of David, he will use a plural pronoun. So that indicates that there's actually two signs that are given. 
There is a sign that is given to the house of David that they will not be destroyed because if you remember, there's going to be this confederation or this alliance between uh, Pekah, who's the king in uh, the north, and Ratzin or Rezin, who is the king of Syria, and they want to depose Ahaz, murder him, and put a puppet in on the throne who is not a descendant of David. So this is a direct satanic attack on the Davidic covenant, God's promise for David, and an attempt to destroy the house of David. This is not the first time Satan has uh, tried to destroy the house of David. So God tells Ahaz, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord, your God, second person singular, ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz, like a self-righteous religious person, says, no, 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 God, I'm not going to test you. And then God said to him, hear now or listen or behold. Notice it is now in a second person plural. That means God is talking to the house of David. It's very clear contextually. Listen now, O house of David. It is a, is it a small thing for you to weary men? It's not singular. He's not talking directly to Ahaz or only to Ahaz. He's talking through Ahaz to what has happened to the house of David in their apostasy. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you, again, plural, weary my God also, and then we have the prophetic promise, therefore the Lord himself will give you, and it's a plural, uh, you a sign, that is you, the house of David, a sign. So the birth of a son through the virgin is a sign that God is going to bring about his promise uh, in the Davidic covenant. I will give you a sign, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's what's fulfilled in Matthew one twenty-three. So the fact that this is still a second person plural indicates something of significance. And this, the, again, I pointed out last time that the virgin indicates a specific woman. And this takes us back to the promise to Eve that between her seed, and here's where we see the introduction of the first use of Zerah in the Messianic context, between your seed, God was speaking to the serpent, uh, between your seed and her seed, referring to one. How do we know it's referring to one and not all of her descendants? Because the pronoun that follows it, that refers to it, is a singular pronoun. He shall bruise your head. You're referring to uh, the serpent. And you shall bruise his heel, a second person singular pronoun. So that's why I said it's important to look at those pronouns because they will tell you whether uh, the word seed is talking about the descendants, plural, or whether it's talking about a singular uh, descendant. So... Skipping ahead, we come to uh, an important passage. I flew through this last time and made a point that uh, this is also critical to understanding the interpretation of the passage. In Isaiah 7.15, talking about this child, curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and, and choose the good. So he's going to grow up, and this is going to be his diet. It's going to be heavy in dairy, uh, 
as well as in honey. Now, there are those that will say that, uh, and this is important because how you interpret this really affects some of the things in the rest of the passage. I'll point that out. Uh, If you take this as being the diet of aristocracy, that this is what would be eaten by those uh, aristocrats in a time of prosperity, then you end up going in one direction. But as we'll see, uh, because of the way it is used uh, down in, uh, if we go down to verse uh, chapter 8, Oh, chapter, same chapter, chapter 7, verse 20. Uh, there's a warning about what will happen when, when uh, the, the Assyrians come. They will shave with a hired razor. One of the things they would do in the ancient world, if, it, if you were conquered by a foreign power, is they would shave your head and shave your beard. It was a sign of humiliation. And so God uses this same imagery that he's going to shave the land with a hired razor. That means that the fields, that means that the forest, these things are going to be destroyed. That's a destruction of the nation's prosperity, and they're going to come under the oppression of a foreign power. Uh, He says, the Lord will shave with the hired razor with those from beyond the river. That would be the river Euphrates with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and will also remove uh, remove the, the beard. And then you skip down to verse 22, and it says, so it shall be from the abundance of milk that they give. Okay, I skip verse 21. It will be in that day, and that day refers to when this happens, when Assyria comes in and shaves the land, uh, the, a man will keep alive a young get, cow and two goats. Now, those are two sheep. They will provide milk. So that is the basis for for having curds. So from the abundance of the milk that they give, that he will eat curds. Well, the eating of the curds is in a a context of the result of oppression and domination by a foreign power. Uh, the, the, The fields that would produce grain and barley and wheat have been destroyed. What's left are some livestock, and because you have wildflowers now just growing up in the empty fields, you have the proliferation of bees and beehives and honey. So about the only thing that's left to eat is going to be the uh, milk and dairy that is produced from your own animals and also honey, and, and because you're living in this time of oppression. Jesus, as the Messiah grows up, Israel is under the thumb of the Roman Empire. It's a time of oppression when they are being heavily taxed by Rome and little is left to eat uh, than just, just the very basics. They were not in a time of prosperity, but in a time, a time of adversity. So uh, this phrase is important to understand some of the things that are going to be coming up. It gives us a real clue and insight into the, uh, the environment, the political environment in which the child of the virgin will be born. So this, uh, this is important to recognize. This is not talking about the food of royalty, but the food of those who are under opp- uh, oppression. So now we come to verse 16. We have to fill in the gap. 
what happens between Isaiah 7, 16 and Isaiah 9, 6, because all of this fits together. So what I want to do is just, I'm just going to fly through this and just give you a, a summary, and this will be a good summary, so that next time that you are reading through Isaiah, you can take a look at this and pick out the ideas that are going on here and the movements that are taking place. So starting, uh, or with the end, with um, in verse 16, it's it, it, there's a shift again to a second masculine singular. Masculine plural is addressed to who? The house of David. When it's masculine singular, it's addressing Ahaz. So now we've come back to where God is, on the one hand, he's given comfort to the house of David that they won't be destroyed, they won't be wiped up by this up, upstart king that uh, the, the Northern Alliance wants to put on the throne. And then he's going to give a personal uh, assurance to Ahaz. And so, and Ahaz is feeling threatened because uh, with this alliance, they could overrun Judah and destroy Judah, and he could lose his life. And so now uh, the Lord says, before the child, that should be lowercase, before the, the child. Now, the question is, who is this child in 716? Is it the child of the virgin, Emmanuel, or is this another child? Well, what other children have been mentioned so far in this passage. In verse 3, God had ordered uh, Isaiah to take his young son, Shear Yashiv, with him. If this isn't referring to Shear Yashiv, then we have no idea why Isaiah was told to take his son with him. But since the context makes a clear point out of the fact that Isaiah was to take his son down there, then he is to be an object lesson for what is going to take place. And so now at this point, what God is pointing out is before the child, that is before Sharyashiv, um, shall know to refuse the evil and to choose the good before he grows up and li lives an adult life where he is making moral decisions about his life. He says the land... Uh, that you dread, that is the nation that you dread, the confederation that's coming down. This is a second person masculine singular. In other words, that you, Ahaz, dread, will be forsaken by both her kings. And that is actually fulfilled within about two years. The Assyrians are going to come in and they are going to sack Samaria. They are going to sack Damascus, and they and both of these kings will end their reign. So that alliance, that confederation between Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel is only has two years left to go. They are truly firebrands that, that are going out. Uh, they've had their heyday, and now these stumps of firewood, as they're described earlier, are about to die out. And then... Um, we get into verse 17, and we get a real negative warning here. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you. Oh, great. He just got the good news that the the northern alliance is going to uh, be, be uh, wiped out and rendered ineffective within two years. But now we get the bad news. And the bad news is that the Assyrians are coming. And the Assyrians were some of the absolutely worst 
most violent people that have ever lived on the planet. And I'm not going to entertain you with um, some of the stories that have come down of how they tortured their prisoners, but that's how they got their joy was to see how long they could torture a prisoner and keep them alive and how much pain they could bring into their life. Not unlike some of the stories um, that go around about the torture among the Comanche or the Apaches or the Sioux or some of the Indian tribes in the Ohio River Valley. I've been reading a book lately called The Heart of Everything That Is that is a story of Red Cloud, and uh, he was a chief of the, of the Sioux, and he was the only, only Indian leader who defeated the U.S. Army. The U.S. Army lost the war with Red Cloud. It's a fascinating read. It's well-written. And I, a few weeks ago in Second Peter, in Spiritual Warfare, I talked about the Fetterman Massacre, and it will go into, I haven't gotten there yet in the book, but it goes into that uh, quite, quite a bit of detail. But the author really goes into detail on all of the torture that made the Sioux very happy. And you can imagine why the, uh, the, the uh, pioneers that first encountered the Indians and were attacked by them and tortured by them developed a saying that the only good Indian was a dead Indian and why American soldiers had a pact with their buddies that if they were going to be overrun, they would shoot each other rather than endure the torture that would come their way. Well, the Assyrians are considered to be much, much worse. And so this was bad news for Ahaz. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you. Again, second person singular. So he's talking, Ahaz, you're going to face it. And your people, second person singular, and your father's house. Days that have not come since the day that Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, departed from Judah. That was followed by civil war between the north and the south, and uh, and the economic conditions were just horrendous as a result of that uh, that situation. So, three things to give you a little of the history here. Remember, the benchmark date is around 722 BC. Some t- we'll say 721 BC. That is when Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom, and they go out under the fifth cycle of discipline. That's your framework. Uh, John taught on Jonah. Jonah is around 750 to 760, somewhere in that time period. And then you also have um, uh, Amos and the earthquake that occurred in the time of Amos, and that's dated to around 750 uh, to 752. So this gives you that, that time frame. The king of Assyria in 732 is tiglath and he plunders the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria. Uh, second big event is then Assyria then comes down and wipes out the northern kingdom of Israel in 721 B.C. And they had a policy of resettlement, so people wouldn't revolt against them. They would round up about 80 or 90 percent of the people and move them to all the four corners of their empire. And so they would be separated from all of their friends or family as they are resettled. And then as other peoples were conquered, they would take those people and resettle them into the area of the northern kingdom of Israel. So you had some who were Jewish 
and they married Jews and they maintained a pure line or mostly pure line in the north. But then you had those who intermarried with the foreigners that were resettled there by the Assyrians. They became known as the Samaritans. And so that's why the Jews had this uh, prejudice, this this disgust with the Samaritans is because they were half-breeds. They weren't uh, full genetic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they were wrong. Jesus treated the Samaritans with great grace and with great love as indicated in the parable of the Good Samaritan. So and then the third thing is that this process is completed by Asher Banerpal some 65 years later in fulfillment of, of the prophecies that we uh, ran through fairly rapidly in the early part of chapter 7. So this shows how God was in control of the situation to protect and preserve the line of David and the kingdom of Judah so that he could, through them, bring the Messiah. So as we then wrap up sort of the last part of... of, um, of of Isaiah chapter 7, this, we run into one other question on verse 16. Let me see if I have that on the slide here. Notice verse 16 begins with the word for. Uh, let me read 15 to you. 15 says, Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. And then it starts with the uh, particle four, which usually indicates an explanation of that which comes before, before it. So that would indicate that 16 and 15 are connected, talking about the same thing. However, without getting into all of the details of and the nuances of the grammar, and this is debated by a number of people, but if you look at the NIV and the early edition of the uh, New Living Translation, it translates this Hebrew phrase as but before, that it is a contrast. And I believe that is that fits the context, even though you can find a number of Hebrew scholars that will ar- argue against that. But the causal sense there that this is because before the child uh, will know to refuse the evil and choose the good doesn't make sense unless the eating of curds and honey represents the food of royalty and something positive. So if the eating of curds and honey indicates he will be the, the child of the virgin will be born in oppression, then verse 16 has got to talk about someone else, another individual, a different child. And so that makes uh, a lot more more sense. So let's uh, go on to the uh, next section. We get into chapter 8, and this is again a warning that Assyria will invade the land. And here we have another child introduced. Now, when I was in seminary, I was in a Hebrew class where it was suggested that the child that was born of the virgin was Meher Shalal Hashbaz. You always wondered when I would make would use various names that uh, to challenge you. Now, do you know the difference between Mephibosheth and Meher Shalal Hashbaz? Well, now you're learning about Meher Shalal Hashbaz. 
He is Isaiah's son, and he was born to Isaiah's wife, who was not a virgin. She already had a child, and that child was Shar Yashiv. And so that indicates that this is not talking about the fulfillment of the Isaiah 14 uh, prophecy. Uh, the Lord says in verse 1 to Isaiah, uh, take a large scroll, scroll and write on it with a, uh, with a pen concerning Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And this is a term that uh, swift is the booty, speedy is the prey, to indicate that, that soon the Assyrians would be coming. And so God says, uh, and I will take for myself uh, faithful, um, faithful witnesses to record uh, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of uh, Jeberechiah. And so then Isaiah says he went into the prophetess and conceived and bore a son who he called Meher Shalal Hashbaz. I wonder what they called him for short. So anyway, what we have here in, in uh, verses 1 through 5 of this chapter is, is the warning that, uh, that the Assyrians were coming. This is not, Meher Shalal Hashbaz is not the child of the virgin. Uh, and it is uh, another, another side that says where the prophecy is given in verse 4, right here on the screen, for before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father or my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. So this tells us that this is fulfilled uh, pretty quickly. And as I pointed out a minute ago, that uh, that, uh, Tiglath-Pileser, Go back here. Tiglath-Pileser plundered Israel in 732. So this is probably no uh, earlier than 734 that that would date this particular prophecy or the birth birth of this child. So this tells us that uh, as a warning, and it's also a judgment on on Judah because of their apostasy. And we read in the next few verses in Isaiah 8, 5 through 7, the Lord also spoke to me again saying, inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloh. What are the waters of Shiloh? Also known as Siloam, the pool of Siloam in uh, the New Testament where Jesus healed the blind man. The waters of Shiloh, this is where the kings of Israel were, uh, were anointed. Uh, this comes down from the spring of Gihon uh, through, at this time, it would, the water would have gone through the tunnel that Hezekiah had built. Those of you who have been to Israel have had the opportunity to walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. And this was a significant statement. So the waters of Shiloh, uh, flowed from an underground stream that originated under the Temple Mount. So this is an allusion to Jerusalem and all that it stood for in terms of God's uh, holy city. And they have refused the waters of Shiloh, which means they have rejected the grace of God and the provision of God to handle their foreign policy. And Ahaz has sought help from the Egyptians and from uh, he went to the Assyrians to help him against the northern coalition. Verse 7, Now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them, that is, over Judah. Pay attention to this. 
Watch the imagery. The waters of the river. What's the river? The river is the river Euphrates. And, the, and what's on the river Euphrates? Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. So the waters of the river is an image to talk about the, the power of the growing power of Assyria as their military power is beginning to flood the ancient Near East just like a river would flood all of its floodplain. Pl- flood the waters of the river, strong and mighty. The king of Assyria, see, he makes it clear who he's talking about. The king of Assyria and all his glory. He will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. He will pass through Judah he will overpass and pla- overflow and pass over, and he will reach up to the neck. See, he's not going to completely destroy Judah. He's only going to get uh, to where it looks like it, right at the edge of complete defeat, which is uh, which is what uh, what happened. And so he will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings uh, will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Notice that I translated that for you because, uh, well, in the King James Version, it translates it, O Emmanuel, but in a lot of English translations, it's, it says at the end of verse 8, he will fill the breadth of your land, O God is with us. You missed the whole point. You have Emmanuel in Isaiah seven fourteen. You have Emmanuel's land in Isaiah 8, 8, in this warning that this is the land of Emmanuel, the land of the Messiah, and it will not be completely destroyed by, uh, by the Assyrians. And so there's a, a, a warning uh, to Judah in verse 9, Be shattered, O you peoples, be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves and be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. For the word, speak the word, but it will not stand. And then you have it repeated again. But this time in the New King James, they don't translate it. I mean, they do translate it. They don't leave it as a manual. For God is with us. And so as it comes to the close of this section in verse 10, it's the emphasis that God is the one who is in control. He is the one who will protect Judah, and he is the one who is going to provide for uh, Ahaz and for the, uh, his descendants to to survive this attack from uh, from the Assyrians. And then we get into the next paragraph, which... Uh, reveals it's more personal it's more directed to Isaiah and he's encouraging Isaiah to don't do this but do this I underlined it in 812 don't say don't succumb to the pressure of the public don't listen to the rumors don't listen to what all of the uh, people say when they say conspiracy don't don't get caught up with all of that Uh, Don't be afraid of their threats or be troubled. Uh, The Lord of hosts, him you will hallow. That means set apart. And so that's the solution. He says, on one hand, don't be afraid. Don't give in to all of the rumors and all of the threats of the people. On the other hand, hallow and sanctify Yahweh of hosts. Let him be your... If you're going to be afraid of anything, don't be afraid of a collapse of the stock market. Don't be afraid of the Muslims and the jihadis. 
Uh, don't be afraid of the Democrats and all of their uh, anti-Semitism and everything else that are go- that's going on today. Be afraid of the Lord. Follow him. Don't get caught up. Don't get caught up in conspiracy theories. There's only one conspiracy, and that's Satan. And you may think, oh, there's this conspiracy, that conspiracy. There's all kinds of garbage that are going on in Satan's world by the devil's disciples. But don't get caught up in all of that. I've known a lot of people who spent hours and hours and hours reading all about these conspiracy theories. You better spend your time reading the Word of God over and over and over again because that's going to count for eternity, not all this uh, conspiracy garbage. So that's the warning to Isaiah there. And then he goes on to say, he will be as a sanctuary. He's the one who protects you, Isaiah. He's the one who's going to protect the nation. But he's going to be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That is going to be applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, he will be, because he'll be rejected uh, to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. God is a trap and a snare to a lot of people. He is a stumbling block and a rock of offense to a lot of people. And if you don't know this, just pay attention to what's going on toward Christians on the university campuses around this country. And it's the same people that are doing the same kind of thing to uh, Israelis and to Jews. There is a tremendous hatred of anybody who reminds them that there is an almighty creator God who rules over the affairs of men. And we are coming to a critical mass in this nation where we will be governed by people who want to do away with Christians because we remind them of Christ and we remind them of God and we remind them of moral absolutes and that they are perverted and that they are following after uh, demonic ideas and they are worshiping demons and all of their false ideas, whether they're atheists or whether they're in some sophisticated form of idolatry. And this is exactly what was happening in Isaiah at that time. They were rejecting God's revelation. And the warning to them is in verse 15, many of them will stumble and they will fall and be broken. They will be snared and taken. They would become eventually under divine discipline and would be removed. But this is what Isaiah is to do. And I will wait on the Lord. This is the same that we find in Isaiah uh, uh, 40. Uh, Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. This is the same word that's used there. Waiting on the Lord is something every believer needs to cultivate. It's a, a basic to the faith rest drill that we need to wait on the Lord in his timing and following what the word says and not give in to fear, not panic because of all of the uh, different conspiracy theories and all of the fears, all of the things that can cause fear that we see in our culture. So uh, Isaiah says, I will wait on the Lord uh, who hides his face from the house of Jacob. See, Jacob has turned negative. They've rejected God, and so God is no longer blessing them. That's what it means. He's hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And Isaiah says, and I will hope in him. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from Yahweh Tzabaoth, from the Lord of hosts. What a tremendous testimony. He and his children... Shar Yashiv and Meher Shalel Hashbaz 
are signs to, of, of divine judgment coming upon Israel. And then we get into verses 19 and 20. 19 especially is one of those central passages related to the dangers of the occult, of getting involved with any kind of demonic activity from astrology to Ouija boards to uh, any kind of New Age mysticism and various uh, various forms of, of uh, false religions and New Age thinking. Uh, when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards, what they're saying is don't find answers in the Bible, but go to a fortune teller. Uh, go to someone who is uh, getting information through necromancy, going to the dead. Uh, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter. Uh, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? See, this was the problem Saul had in his complete carnal breakdown at the end. He went for guidance from the witch of Endor rather than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he got involved with a medium, the witch of Endor, and she's calling forth uh, one of these uh, demons. They're called uh, Ove in the Hebrew and in Gostromuthos in the Greek. And what would happen is she would hear this, you know, it would just sound like noise to most people, but then she would hear coming up from the ground because she's got a ventriloquist demon who's throwing it, she's throwing her voice to the ground, making it sound like the grave is speaking, and then she would interpret that. And that was the gimmick. But she got totally surprised that day because Samuel actually showed up. And she knew then, she immediately recognized Saul, she knew it was Samuel, and she knew that uh, uh, that her whole game had been exposed. So that's what they were doing. They're looking to uh, wizards, they're looking to fortune tellers and others to give them hope. But for Isaiah, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Now, that is a great passage to highlight and, and underline. Uh, if, if somebody is not basing their life on the law and the testimony, then there's no light in them. It, it is comparable to when the rich man is in, tar, is in torments, and he's begging Abraham to send his uh, send someone back, send uh, uh, Lazarus, the beggar, back to give the gospel to his brothers. And Abraham says, if they don't listen to the law and the prophets, they won't listen to somebody who is raised from the dead. See, that's the issue. It's negative volition. Uh, so if they're not willing to listen to the law and the testimony, that is the Old Testament uh, as much as they had at that time, uh, then there's no light in them. Now we come to Isaiah chapter 9. Cha Isaiah chapter 9 is going to focus us on what's positive, and uh, it's pretty simple. I don't have to spend a lot of time explaining what is going on in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. But the lead-up continues this, this whole idea that there is spiritual darkness in the land of, in the northern kingdom in Isaiah. In fact, this is going to be applied to Galilee at the time of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 15. Uh, Nevertheless, the gloom 
uh, will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, that's up in, up in Galilee, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea, that would be the Sea of Ga- Galilee or, or Gennesaret, uh, beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great life. This is ultimately applied to the time of Jesus when he goes and teaches among the Gentiles and the, the, uh, up in the north in Galilee. And then if you read down, it talks about how a God eventually is going to break the yoke in Isaiah 9.4. Uh, he's going to destroy the oppressor. At the end of 9-4, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian, that was when Gideon defeated the Midianites. And verse 5, For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. In other words, there's not going to be any more war, so they're going to take all their weapons and all of their armament and all of their uniforms that are covered in blood because they've won the victory, and they're going to put them into the fire. That happens at the end of the tribulation period, and then the king will come. And that's our our passage, Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born to us. Again, the emphasis on humanity. There's the birth of a child. A son, this is the one who has declared the son in Psalm 2. It's a title for the second person of the Trinity. A son will be given to us. So the first line emphasizes humanity. The second line emphasizes deity. And the government will rest on his shoulders. He is the coming king. As we'll see in verse 7, this is the one who fulfills the Davidic covenant. And then we're told uh, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now there's debate among uh, Hebrew scholars as to whether Wonderful Counselor is one word or two. And when Steve Gare was here, he took it as two I have always taken it as one title. The Hebrew word for wonderful, sometimes translated beautiful, is the Hebrew word peli, P-E-L-E. And we use the English word wonderful to talk about something that is incomprehensible or extraordinary, something beyond human capability for uh, both God and man. We can say God is wonderful. We can say your wife is wonderful. You can say that uh, the company you work for is wonderful. Uh, It can be applied to God or to man, but the Hebrew word pele is only used of God. So when it talks about this one being called wonderful counselor, the wonderful is use, uses a word that indicates uh, complete uh, deity. The term counselor is connected to it. It's a wonderful counselor, and I'll tell you what that means in a second. But the idea of a counselor in our country is talking about a, a, a psychotherapist or a social worker Uh, the idea of someone who advises, but the idea in the Hebrew is someone who guides a nation, someone who has skill in leadership and making a, a nation great. So that's the idea. And the word wonderful stands in relation to it. So it could be translated a wonder of a counselor or a wonder counselor. That's the idea. 
So the words should be taken together. The second title is Mighty God, which is also applied to uh, God in Isaiah 10:21. It is applied to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The word for mighty can be applied to a warrior, but in this sense it's applied to the Messiah because as a warrior he comes back and he defeats the armies of the Antichrist at Armageddon and he defeats uh, the all the demonic and human enemies of God and casts the Antichrist and the false prophet into uh, the lake of fire and will bind Satan for a thousand years. The next title, Eternal Father, is one that that confuses people uh, because of the bad translation. How will the Messiah be called a father? The way it should be translated in the, from the Hebrew is he is the father of eternity, indicating that he is the author and the creator of time. He is the one who himself is eternal and the father of eternity. Uh, it indicates his the characteristic of eternality that is his. And then the last title is that he is called the Prince of Peace. Peace here is implying to uh, peace both in a spiritual sense. He's the one who provides peace with God through his death on the cross, but he is also the one who will bring in a time of unprecedented world peace in the millennial kingdom. Everybody tries for it now. Uh, the UN, the League of Nations, all these other uh, various emperors have tried to bring in world peace. The only one that can do it is going to be the Son of God, the King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. And otherwise, it's just going to be world peace and just nothing but a mess. Isaiah 9-7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. That's when the Davidic covenant is fulfilled. Jesus is not on the throne of David now. He is at the right hand of God the Father. You get folks like these progressive dispensationalists and and amillennialists who come along and say that the, the right hand of God is the spiritual throne of David. That's because they no longer believe in the literal meaning of the text, and they are absolutely wrong when it comes to interpreting it that way. The kingdom will not come until uh, Israel is brought as a regenerate nation into the land that occurs at the end of the tribulation uh, under the authority of the coming of the Davidic king, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the, our, our second passage here. This whole idea of Emmanuel connects the virgin-born, virgin-conceived, virgin-born child in Isaiah uh, 7.14 to uh, this uh, child who is given in Isaiah 9.6, and that this is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So we'll come back next time and look at uh, what happens between 9-7 and take us on into Isaiah chapter 11 to wrap up this section of uh, of Isaiah that's dealing with the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in the, in the future. Father, thank you for this time we've had in your word. Uh, we're convinced that this is prophecy and it was fulfilled literally as the New Testament says and that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, a descendant of David, 
is born in the city of David, and he is uh, called Christ the King and offered his kingdom because he is a descendant of David, the one to whom this uh, promise applied. But because of his rejection, he went to be with you in heaven, and he will return at some point to establish his kingdom. And we look forward to that with great joy, and we need to be reminded again and again to live today in light of that future reign with him. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.